Today's scriptures reading um, is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 38, verse 11 to 16, 24 to 27, then chapter 39, verse 1 to 3, 7, 11 to 14, and 19 to 20. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timna to his ship sharers, he and his friends Hira the Adelamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timna to share his ship, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timna. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? Verse 24 to 27, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burnt. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom this belonged, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Chapter 39, verse 1 to 3. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ismailites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, 
and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that <clears throat> that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Verse 19 to 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. The Word of God. Thank you, Augustina, for reading scripture with such care and such dignity. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Caleb Yap, and I'm very glad and excited to be bringing God's Word today. Uh, every single one of us in this sanctuary is a meaning maker. Well, that means we have an innate need to make sense of what's happening to us and around us. We observe the world around us and try to organize what we see in life so that things become a little bit more predictable, and when they're predictable, things become a little bit more manageable. But crisis, suffering, and unforeseen circumstances rob us of that predictability. And that's when our lives spiral out of control. What do you do in these moments? These can be times of amazingly useful spiritual clarity, where the false meaning that we've made for ourselves is in one sense exposed, and God is more than able through the renewing of our minds, to help us discover what His will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we learn to trust Him, He reveals the beautiful tapestry that He is weaving out of our lives, the great story that God is telling. And that's why, as we've read Genesis this year, if we've been paying attention, it's actually been really powerful because God gives us the story that makes sense of all stories. By faith, we are part of the unfolding generations of grace. And God's grace has been the recurring theme. Unmerited and undeserved favor that falls like rain on a mountain, that drips from Abraham at the top of the mountain to Isaac, to Jacob, and as the mountain gets wider to the base, the 4G, the sons of Jacob. And earlier in our service, uh, we heard Psalm 105, which zooms in on one of Jacob's 11 sons, the man that God sent ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Joseph's life is the final section of Genesis in which we see the covenant of blessing partially fulfilled. Joseph is foreshadowing or a type of the Savior that God is sending to bless all the nations. But jutting into the story of Joseph is this episode of Judah and Tamar. And it can be confusing and uncomfortable. 
I pray that today God will help us make sense of this challenging story and behold the wonderful tapestry of grace that he is weaving in the Bible through Jesus Christ. Let us seek his help in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word. Now open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, keep your Bibles open and we're going to track the story along under two big hitters. This is the first one, Judah, scandalous grace that transforms. Let's set the stage in chapter 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Hesib when she bore him. It was this Judah who proposed that his brother Joseph be sold for profit. He saw his father's grief, grief that refused comfort. And did that guilt haunt him? We don't know exactly why Judah turns his back on his brothers, but he turns aside to Hira the Adulamite for friendship and to Canaanites for wife and children. That much we know. Escapism is one way that people respond to guilt and to broken relationships. We avoid who we don't want to see, We absent ourselves from where we ought to be, and we try to go somewhere else. We try and start somewhere new. But like the prodigal son running away from home, we are never doing anything actually but running to somewhere. We are going to someone when we run away. And what we run to may very well be worse than what we've left behind. Judah's choice is to make a future with the unbelievers in the land. Think about this. These are the people his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Rebekah, had forbidden intermarriage with. But Judah was making his own future now, one without God in it. Verse 4, she conceived and bore a son. She called his name Onan. Oh, excuse me. Verse 6 to 11, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. The full extent of Ur's wickedness is not known to us, but he and Onan, his brother, are put to death by the Lord himself. Onan breaks the leveret law which his father commands to perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And more details about this law are given us in Deuteronomy 25. What this means is that Onan was sinning first against his brother's widow by depriving her of the offspring that would have helped to secure her place in society. And second, 
against his dead brother by blotting out his family line and plundering his inheritance. A son for Ur and Tamar means less inheritance for Onan. So God gives this verdict. When you enrich yourself at the expense of the helpless, that is wicked sin, and the wages of sin is death. Friends, should we not tremble at this thought? The God of the Bible sees all and even puts the wicked to death. Psalm 10 verse 13 says, Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? Judah had renounced God, but he and his sons were still accountable to their maker and judge, as all of us are. This text warns us that if we neglect justice, if we do not do what is right, if we withhold it from the vulnerable, God sees and God will act. Judah himself should have done the right thing. Deuteronomy 25 tells us that the family elder, the patriarch, the spiritual leader of the house should have intervened. He should have provided correction. But there is a pattern of injustice and a pattern of action in Judah's life. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah is a father who is blind to the wickedness of his boys. He is blind to what God thinks about sin. Instead, all he can see is his prejudice. All he sees is Tamar's fault. So he put her out of sight, put her out of mind, with a pledge that he has no intention to keep. Now both Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament have been given specific instructions not to overlook, not to abuse widows, but to honour them and provide for them. Exodus 22 1 Timothy 5. Judah had done the opposite. And eventually, his son, Shelah, grows up, and Judah himself is bereaved. With no more wife to bear him children, he must safeguard his final son, his line. So he opts to do nothing for Tamar. And Tamar can see that Judah has broken his pledge to her. Judah is indeed a hard-hearted man. He grieves for his wife for just one week, and then he goes off for a work trip with his friend. Compare this with his own father who mourned for days and was inconsolable. The sheep shearing that our text refers to is a spring festival that celebrates the harvest. So he goes and he shears his sheep uh, up with all the sheep shearers and there they drink. And this occasion was known for the wild festivities that took place. Tamar knows this. And she springs swiftly into action. Verse 14, look at all the verbs there. She took off her garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up and sat down at the entrance on the road to Timnah. Her entire plan is based on Judah's predictable sin. Think about this. Her entire plan is, pre is based on how predictable Judah's sin will be. On his way to drunken celebration, Judah sees not just a prostitute, but verse 21 tells us a cult prostitute of Canaanite fertility religion. 
and the worshippers of these religions would seek out these cult prostitutes to get the gods to make their crops and their herds fertile. You, you see how far Judah has turned aside from his father's faith. Needless to say, joining such rituals was an abomination to Israel. Deuteronomy 23. For I is the lamp of the body. If the eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. So in both of our chapters, we're going to see, be careful, little eyes, what you see. His wife had barely passed, but when Judah's eyes fall on this woman, he initiates sex with her in shameless language. Come, let me come into you. God designs sex as a self-giving act of love in a one-flesh union. Judah sees sex as bodily urges and a crude transaction. He offers payment of a goat, but the woman asks for a pledge of payment. She is not interested in what she can get from him, but what he can give to prove he keeps his promises. The test here that she set for him is not of wealth. It is a test of character. So Judah fumbles around and gives her a signet or a cylindrical stamp that's used to seal a personal or business or legal documents. And it's probably tied with a cord to his shepherd's staff. The whole thing is probably just one big piece in his hand. And it's the equivalent of him pulling out his wallet and his ICs inside, take the whole thing. So they each get what they want and things move quickly along. Tamar conceives by her father-in-law almost immediately and she resumes her place. Verse 20, when Judah sobers up, he doesn't even want to go back. He doesn't want to face her. So Hiram is sent to pay, but she is gone. Judah decides, some things don't talk about. Better avoid embarrassment, pretend nothing happened. But while some sins are conspicuous and judged quickly, other sins appear later. To be precise, one trimester later. Her father-in-law's knee-jerk reaction is hypocritical and violent. Bring her out and let her be burned. Now, this would have shocked the original Israelite readers because nobody proposes burning for the sin of adultery because it's torture. The disproportionate judgment shows just how much Judah despised Tamar all along. Finally, he had a good reason to be rid of this troublesome woman. Shelah would be safe those of us who hold authority, especially in homes and churches, should take heed. Authority without the fear of God in it always tends towards injustice and abuse. But Tema is prepared. She sends back the missing pledge items, the signet cord and staff. She says, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are. Judah's pledge to the prostitute by the road has exposed his broken pledge to his daughter-in-law. He's stunned and he confesses, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again, meaning he did not take her for a wife or have further relations with her. Well, something profound has taken place in Judah's heart 
confronted by the same sins he condemned, he sees his double standards. He sees how hypocritical he was to call for her death, how wicked he was to break his promise, and how far he has strayed from God. Pastor Tim Keller comments on his realization, spiritual revival is when you see people you used to despise and realize you're no better than they are. I was struck by how different, Tema's res- how different Judah's response is from the modern he said, she said scandals that we hear about all the time. Judah could have blamed Tamar for entrapment. He could have released his side of the story. He could have smeared her, dragged her down, and that would have confused everyone in the community. Uh, Everybody would would just be lost in what are the facts, what did he say, what did she say? And after a while, people forget, and, and the news cycle just moves on. Nothing good comes from that. Instead, the Bible gives us the better way. Godly grief, broken hearted repentance. This is critical for us. What Tamar has exposed, Judah does not try to hide. The sinner stops running. He does not self-justify or explain his actions away. Worldly grief says, we both sinned. We are both unrighteous, okay? Godly grief says, my sin was actually greater. She is more righteous than I. And from this moment on in Genesis, Judah is changed forever because he has seen himself clearly, a sinner in need of grace, the self-promoting, self-indulgent, self-righteous Judah has been undone. As for Tamar, Judah rescinds his earlier judgment. The prophet Hosea writes in allusion to this episode, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Let's be clear. Strong words are used here against the sin of the woman. They played the whore. They committed adultery. No question about that. But Hosea, God, and even Judah himself all agree that for men of authority who do the same thing, theirs is the greater sin. Pastor John MacArthur points out that this verse deals with human double standards. God, and I quote, God forbade punishing the adulteresses alone and leaving the men who patronize them to go free, unquote. To pardon one and not the other would be unjust, but instead God has mercy on both Judah and Tamar together. And more than that, understanding has come to Judah. Understanding that keeps him from utter ruin. And still more grace is given. Though the text does not name him, God is the one who grants life from Tamar's near-immediate conception to her fruitful labor. And friends, what a weekend to be thinking about how the wickedness of man cannot restrain the God who gives every sacred life. He is the one that fills Tamar's womb with not one son but two. He lost two sons to wickedness, but God gives him two sons, not by Shelah but by Tamar. And this birth story 
of Perez and Zerah is told very unusually. The first comes out, his hand comes out, he's marked with a scarlet thread, the hand goes back, and the second child makes a breach or a breakthrough, and the second becomes the first. This is an echo of the story of Jacob and Esau, which, has, which is telling us something significant is going to come from Perez. More on that later. A few weeks ago, Brother Brian stood here and told us that the sons of Jacob are bozos. Now, that was my takeaway from that sermon. His first three sons disqualified themselves spiritually. Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi slaughter the whole city of Shechem in rage. Judah, the fourth, goes down in sin, turns aside, loses himself until God comes looking for him, using the most unlikely heroine, Tamar. And God has changed him. God has given him children. And this digression in the Joseph story is a flash of God's grace for sinners like Judah and all his bozo brothers. Friends, every one of us in this room is also a bozo. All of us are like Judah, in need of God's scandalous grace. We need that grace that taught our hearts to fear, grace that fear is relieved. That's why we have a prayer of confession in the middle of our worship service, so that we can cry out to God for our sins, not anybody else's sins, our sins. And we can claim 1 John 1, 9 that says that when we confess our sins, not hiding them or self-justifying them, God is faithful and just to forgive. It's why we must not shy away from church or from sermons where we hear about sin. We must preach sin if we are to understand grace. This is also why we need Tamas in our lives. God uses Tamas to confront us, to clash with us, to correct us, and to change us. Judah's story is all about change. Change that happens when we confess our sin without hiding and when we repent of sin without returning to it. Judah acknowledged his sin. He commits never to do it again. He rescinds Tamar's death sentence and he never knew her again. Real godly change is possible for all of us, for Judah, for you, and for me. If God's Spirit right now is calling you to deal decisively with sin, to confront certain fleshly desires, sinful habits, or the unjust prejudice against others. Do not grieve God's Holy Spirit and ignore His correction. Lift drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, respond to Him. Repent today, seek out God's people here to help you, or or come and speak to us as elders about what God has said to you today. Our life together in this church is exactly meant to spur us towards godly change. That's what our care groups should be. If we really care about one another, we should care for holiness, for change, and how we stand before God before it's too late. 
God desires that all of us be holy to the end and in the end. And He will use difficult circumstances to change us and to sustain us for the end. So we turn to our second point in Genesis 39. Joseph sustaining grace in unjust suffering. I used to teach secondary school literature and a technical term that I had to explain that wasn't too complicated, not too long, not too technical, was foil, F-O-I-L. A literary foil is a second contrasting character that draws attention to traits of the first. So thanks for joining my class today. Like Watson and Holmes, Sam and Frodo, or Judah and Joseph. These are the foils that are built into this text. In our text today, we see Judah's sexual sin highlighting Joseph's sexual purity. And Judah's turning aside from God highlights Joseph's perseverance. It was read for us just now, and I do apologize for this slide. Joseph happens to be bought by an officer of Pharaoh, Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard. Uh, uh, Pastor Oliver talked last week about God's providence, his hidden work that we cannot see, working out good for his people. According to God's providence, Joseph is not just a random slave in Egypt. He is the slave of a senior government official. And he has success in his job. And he gains his master's trust. Why? Because verse 2, the Lord, all caps, is with Joseph there. The God who makes covenant, the Lord, is the source of Joseph's strength. This is the Old Testament version of knowing Emmanuel, God with us. We don't know how Joseph practiced his faith. But with Judah as a foil, we can infer that Joseph was faithful to God in keeping up his prayer life, his moral life, and his worship life. There were many other gods in Egypt, and there were many reasons for Joseph to despair personally. But he stood by the Lord, and the Lord stood by him. Is anyone here tempted to despair and abandon the Lord? Emmanuel, God with us, knows our circumstances, and he does not leave or forsake his own. So Joseph served in Egypt and he was blessed. He was blessed to be a blessing because he did not compromise his faith. So this is the key for us. Joseph was of special help to his master because he was separate and holy to God. As Christians in the world, have we become of the world? While we live among unbelievers, do we live like unbelievers? As Acts 17 says, God has placed every one of us exactly where and when we are, as Joseph was in Egypt, because the Lord wants a man or a woman in your school, in your workplace, in your family. You being where you are is God's mission plan. And it all hinges on whether as you're there, you're holy for Him, or whether we end up like the world. This church must help its members guard our witness and spur one another on towards holiness and be a blessing to the world. So when we gather in worship like this, 
We are to help one another grow in holiness, not just get coffee. We are here to speak and help each other change, to embrace our mission to be a blessing to the world and to stay salty, as it says in Matthew 5. Joseph was salt and light in Egypt because he did not lose his saltiness and because he did not hide the light of Christian witness. And everybody could see that light on his life. You looked at him and you could see that he stands out. He's special with God-given beauty in form and appearance. Verse 6, this phrase is used only once to describe his mother. But he also attracts unwelcome looks. Like Judah, Potiphar's wife has wandering eyes for the object of her sinful, des- of her sinful desire. Like Judah, her language is crude and blunt. Lie with me. Verse 10 tells us that her temptation is not once-off, it's day after day, relentless. And you and I live in a similar world. Sexual temptation that follows us everywhere. A world that promises pleasure, through pornography at the click of a button, intimacy with others with no commitment, even the distorted true love fantasies of some of our drama serials. Joseph gives us the application of godliness. He would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. I mean, he didn't have to sleep with her, but could he just do his job around her Or enjoy a compliment or two? Was it a sin to listen to her voice? No compromise whatsoever. Joseph gives us the inner reasoning for sexual purity and holiness, verses 8 to 10. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Friends, as I read this passage, I thought about the purity of Joseph, and I felt deeply ashamed of my own failings. God brought to my mind many times where I have flirted with temptation and compromised instead of being wise and fully committed to my own holiness. I felt grief as I thought about how impure my life has been. But praise God that there is one who is pure as Joseph was for me and for you. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. A great high priest who pleads mercy for his people. He, like Joseph, embodies 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil, and so should we. Notice also that sexual relations outside of marriage, even shared by two willing adults, is seen as a great wickedness and sin against God. Our day is a day where we've tried to reframe sexual ethics as a matter of consent and desire. As long as there's adult consent, no one gets hurt. This is a lie. Why does God care about who we sleep with? 
writer Sam Albury says, because God cares deeply about the people doing the sleeping. The God of the Bible hates the sinful culture that, ruin, that ruins people. This sexual immorality that ruins a person's dignity, personhood, and our capacity to love, all of it is ruined by sexual immorality. Proverbs 7 has strong words about what happens if we follow the adulteress into sexual immorality. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The path of pursuing who and what I find sexually desirable and my freedom to love leads only to death and separation from God. In contrast, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, Potiphar's wife tries to force herself on Joseph, verse 11, but he would rather abandon his clothing, verse 12, and flee the house than be entrapped by her. And this same clothing, the same garment he leaves behind, she's going to use to deceive her husband and smear him. Spurned, she will cook up a story and play up ethnic prejudices and stir up her household to pressure her husband. Twice she tells the story referring to him as the Hebrew or a Hebrew servant brought in by Potiphar. And this is a pressure tactic and it works. Joseph is unjustly imprisoned. But notice the hand of God invisibly at work. Potiphar has not executed the man who supposedly assaulted his wife. He's not dead. And he's placed, of all places, with the king's prisoners. And we'll circle back to this in further sermons. But still, Joseph here is at rock bottom. This is the lowest point in his life. Twice now his garments have been used to deceive. His multicolored coat was used to deceive his dad. Now his discarded shirt is evidence and he's in jail. Joseph has gone down into the pit, down into slavery, and down into the depths of prison. There will be times when for righteousness' sake, Christians will be falsely accused and suffer for our faith. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So do not be surprised when they slander you or persecute you because that's what happens to God's people. That's what happened to God's Son. But when everything is stripped away and all we have is God, we see how sustaining grace upholds us at rock bottom. Verse 21, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. But we never hear once of Joseph, Joseph's protest of unjust sufferings. He doesn't begrudge God. He doesn't begrudge his master. And that's because at rock bottom, Joseph had favor from on high. Four times in our chapter, we are told the Lord was with Joseph, twice in Potiphar's house, twice here in prison. These are the bookends to the crisis in the middle of his life, the false accusation. Sustaining grace has upheld him. 
And I don't want us to miss this, the differences between Judah and Joseph. I love this. Listen, Judah had wealth. He's a small business owner. He had wife. He had sons. He had friends in Canaan, but he didn't have God. And his life was full of sin and all the trouble that sin brings until God intervened. What about Joseph? Joseph was a foreigner, a slave, at best a domestic servant, and now a sex criminal and a prisoner at the lowest rung of society, but he had God himself and he had all things. Yes, he had trouble too. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Don't miss that. But if you lose the world and you have the Lord, you have it all. You gain the world and you lose the Lord, you have nothing. Let no one be deceived by what true blessing looks like in this life. And God's blessing trickles down that mountain all the way down to the base where Joseph is. And it overflows across the banks and across the fields to the nations. That's what this is telling us. The picture that we see, verses 21 to 23, as in Potiphar's house, verses 2 to 6, there is a virtuous cycle of favor and work and blessing. God's presence and favor, flowers, promotion, and influence in Joseph's life. And the reward for good work is always more work. And the Egyptians, as a result, see the fruit of that work. And they have received abundant blessings, not from Joseph, but from the Lord. And not once, but twice in this story. And this is not a prosperity gospel thing, okay? It's not a reward for good behavior. No, the story has lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of, of poverty. No, this is about how God's channel of blessing, gospel blessing, comes to the nations through the suffering of the faithful. So trust God when you are suffering. He sustains us through the hardest of our circumstances and the toughest of our times. Our sufferings may not look exactly like this, but even in the dark of the prison and the years of loneliness, God was working out good. And He shows favor to those who fear Him and call upon His name. And perhaps someone in this room needs to hear this today. If the darkness covers you and the light around you becomes night, even then the darkness is not dark to God. The night is as bright as the day to Him. Don't miss this golden thread that runs throughout the Joseph story, that Joseph is going down and down and down. But each time he goes down, he's actually getting closer and closer to the seat of power and authority that God has prepared so that he can save people in the days to come. If none of the downs had happened, how would he ascend? I love this hopeful quote from Pastor John Piper. No matter what you face this year, God will be doing 10,000 things in your life that you cannot see. Trust Him, love Him, and they will all be good for you. And look at all the good that God has poured out on Joseph and Judah. He prospers their line with descendants. They become great tribes. In fact, they grow to become great houses in the north and the south of Israel. 
And later, God promises such abundant grace to them that He will forgive all their sins in the future. In Zechariah 10, verse 6, hear this, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. You see, all the good God works out for these brothers. The most prominent of the 4G, grace sustaining Joseph in unjust suffering. And the story goes on. Scandalous grace transforming Judah, even through Tamar and her sons. So what becomes of Perez? The book of Ruth answers, Perez will be ancestor to the great king, David. Through him, God fulfills every promise to Abraham and Jacob in Genesis 17 and 35. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and kings shall come from you, from your own body. Kings. Genesis 49 confirms this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wait, surely Jacob means Joseph, the ruler of Egypt. No, he said Judah, royal tribe, leader of Israel, from Judah and Tamar, kings, even the king of kings. One greater than, Jude, than David comes from Judah, King Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And writing his genealogy, we see in Matthew's writing the prominent surprise, Tamar, the widowed Canaanite, along with three other women of scandal, Rahab, another Canaanite, and Ruth, the Moabitess, and the wife of Uriah. These are the only four names in the genealogy of the king. Foreigners scandalized and yet honored together with Mary, the scandalized virgin, found to be with child, not from her husband Joseph. They are mothers of Jesus Christ, the Savior, who is the friend of sinners and the fountain of all grace. If anyone here is not a believer, you heard this story? There is grace in Christ for all of us. His family tree is full of scandalous sinners, and there's room for more. If we will turn from our sins and trust in Him, He welcomes us with open arms, arms that were pierced and nailed to the cross to satisfy God's wrath against sin. He was raised with power and authority, like Joseph, to save the nations. And I hope if you are not a Christian and you're here today, come, come and have a chat after this service. Let's talk about what we've just heard together. And to the members of the church called grace, yours is this gospel of grace. Carry it to the nations in blessing. Share it with your friends and your family and your neighbors. Don't limit the power of the gospel to convert even the most unlikely and the hardest sinners. There is no heart too broken no family too bent out of shape that the gospel cannot bring to life. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, this scandalous grace in this gospel can transform us. 
this sustaining grace can see us through all the things we are facing. He has woven a beautiful tapestry of grace for Judah and Joseph in the story of Jesus. And if he's your savior, grace is weaving something beautiful of your story too. The Dutch writer Corrie ten Boom loved to show off this hand-woven tapestry in her home in the Netherlands. So one side, this side, shows the working end. Lumps of messy, tangled yarn. And I wonder if you can see what it is. On the other side, the finished product is rich in black and gold, royal beauty. You look at one side, you would never think that this was on the other side. But the grace of God in Christ can weave the most beautiful things out of the most broken people. Hear these words in closing, written by Corrie ten Boom. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors that he weaves steadily. Oftentimes he weaves sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those leave the choice to him. Gracious Father, you know us, you love us, and how you care for us. Thank you for your word, this amazing story of grace that you have told us this morning. May your grace transform us, may it sustain us. We stand in Christ alone, knowing that through him you are working out such beauty for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.